we have come to a very important subject today, subject of sin. What does the Bible say about sin, or what should I believe about sin? One of the more important things that's happening in our time is what people say about the sin of homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it is listed with those sins which, if committed, practiced, and continued, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We want to help people. This church is noted as the church where love is, but we need to talk about sin. In this fellowship, many miracles are happening in the lives of people, and I'm happy to present to you a miracle this morning in the person of Mr. Perry Atherton. Perry, welcome, and God bless you for being willing to talk to me this morning. God bless you. Praise God. Perry, from that baptismal tank up there, some months ago, I heard you say that you were a homosexual. Is that correct? Yes, sir, I did. How long did you practice homosexuality? It was about eight years and all. How did you get into homosexual practice? Well, it was a, it was a lie from the enemy in the beginning. I was deceived. And it was just from pornography and from fantasizing at a very young age. And it was just something that I knew was sin from the very beginning. I knew it was wrong. You grew up, I understand, in a Christian home with praying parents. Yes, sir, I did. And my, my heart really goes out to all parents and to all sons and daughters and grandmothers, grandfathers, husbands and wives to just always keep praying because, I mean, my parents kept praying for all those years and God answered their prayer, and that's what was convicted me that whole time was their prayers. You had a walk with the Lord then. Yes, I did. When I, was, I accepted Christ when I was 12 years old. When did you enter into this lifestyle? When I was 18, but I went away from the Lord when I was 14. I never committed my life to him. Now, use the word gay. Were you happy? Pastor, I, you know, that's, a, that's another deceivement, and... You think you're all happy. Satan makes you think that, you know, it's fun, it's exciting, and everyone's like this. And that's a big lie, and I was never happy at night times. You know, I might lead on like I was, but the Holy Spirit convicted me all those years. And there wasn't a night that went by that I don't think that I really, deep down, I knew what I was doing was wrong, and it was sin. I think that's important to say again. Inside of you, there was something gnawing away. It wasn't all what they said it should have been. Is that what you're telling us? Oh, that's so true. I mean, just, just when I gave my life finally to the Lord, that's when the true happiness and the joys come, and it's, it's exciting. I didn't think there would ever be a time when I could actually even come back into the church or even pray or read my Bible. I just didn't think it was possible. And it was when I finally gave my life to the Lord and opened my Bible and got into prayer, it's, it's incredible. It's awesome. I can tell by looking at your earlobe, you used to wear at least one earring, maybe two. I think I see a couple uh, marks there. Uh, is that kind of a sign? I don't get into all of this. Well, but, uh, that was, both of those were from rebellious stages. One was done by a girlfriend, I think, when I was 16 in, in that era. And then the other one was when I was in my homosexual lifestyle. I had it done. Were you accepted by the church? This church? Yes. Oh, I thank God every day because... I thank you for you, and I thank you for this church because of the love that everyone's given me here and you. And there's not been any condemnation or anything. I mean, 
No one cares for what you did in your, your past. And it, that's, you know, I stand on this scripture like you just read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 about where it says that, that you once were and you were washed, you were sanctified and justified by Christ the Lord and in the Spirit of God. And I just thank God for that. And I stand on that because you can't condemn, you know, what, once God, I'm a new person in God. That's, that's incredible. I, I see you've got your finger kind of stuck in that page in the Bible. I love that too. You were, that's past that's tense. Right. Amen. Murderers, homosexuals, sodomites, it goes on. Are you free? Pastor, I've never been so free in all my life. And it's, and it's not nothing that happens overnight. And it's something, you know, I, all those years that I was walking in sin, I, I was waiting for God to do something in my life. I was like, well, God, if you want me out of this, you'll just take me out of it. And I said that through the whole time. The thing is, I had to make the decision. You have to want to get out. You have to ask God. And he's there. He won't do anything until you make that decision. And you have to make that decision every day. Perry, let me see if I've got it right. You made a choice to get into that lifestyle, and you had to make a choice to get out of it. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. How did you make that choice? By accepting Christ and telling him, you know, just giving him my life and say, Lord, I'm committed to you, and it's out of obedience. It's out of obedience. It all comes from obedience. Now you're active in the singles ministry here. You're here a lot, and I suspect for a person who's changing, that's important, isn't it? Yes. To find new friends. I guess you need yes. new friends. Uh, I got plugged into Pure Life here, which I thank God and you backed up all the way. And it's something that you have to get plugged in and be accountable. You really do. If you You've done that. Yes, yes, sir. And you feel fulfilled. I praise God. You don't feel any tendency to go back into that old... Oh, Satan, you know, has tempted me in the past, but praise God, you know, I got him now. And I got the word and I believe it now. You kicked him in the chops each Amen. time. Praise huh? God. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's Amen. exciting. Where do your parents live now, Perry? In Louisville, Kentucky. Do they see this television program? My parents love this show. They love this show. They watch it, and they, they're taking a tape into their church just to show them how they pray here, so they'll get into praying there. They really love well, it. Well, <laughs> in a couple of weeks, they'll get to see this program, so why don't you say hi to Mom and Dad and thank them for their prayers that have followed you to this platform as a delivered human being who trusted Jesus Christ and he did not fail you. Amen. You can do that. I just want to say I, I love the Lord, and I thank God for giving me parents like you, and I love you, Mom and Dad, and I just thank you for your prayers because God answers prayer, and he does work miracles. We love Amen. the homosexual. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Perry. Thank you, Terry. I love you, brother. I love you. How fundamental are the fundamentals? What should I believe about the Bible? Our texts this morning say it so clearly, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, or as the New King James says, all have sinned and fall short. We all do. The president, the pope, the pastor, the deacons, every one of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Some of you men say you live with an angel. Not true. All sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it says it so well. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we are a liar. And the truth is not in us. Powerful texts. The entire gospel centers around the doctrine of sin. Listen to these words from 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to form a new government, a new society. It is summed up in one line. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came and that's why God sent him to save sinners. Now the problem we face today is that there is a very light attitude about sin in the world. In an article from the Wall Street Journal recently, I read these words at the top of a column. Young girls still go to home for unwed, but shame has gone. That interested me, so I read on. They show little evidence of being ashamed or even self-conscious. They wear bright, loose t-shirts embossed with such slogans as coming attractions and great expectations. One girl said, I'm the first one in my ninth grade class to get pregnant. In two months, I'm going to be a grown-up woman with my own little baby. Well, honey, you're not going to be a grown-up woman. You may have a little baby, but you'll be far from grown-up. It just doesn't work that way. What struck my attention was what was said at the top. Shame has gone. Many of the great divisions created in society today are over unwillingness to accept the reality of personal sin. Take, for example, the controversy of abortion. The whole thing centers around our unwillingness to accept responsibility. It all has to do with a responsibility for our acts. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, wages come to the sinner. And we must be willing to accept that. Take responsibility for the acts of our lives. Take, for example, murder. We have controversy over this matter of capital punishment. There should be no controversy. We are responsible for our acts. We have talked about homosexuality. Responsible for our acts. You can't take that word out of the Bible. You can't remove Romans chapter 1. You can't remove the commandments in Leviticus. You can't take out 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. They are there and they'll be there forever. We have to become responsible for our acts. I would be less than a friend if I didn't say that today. All have sinned. And I'm not just pointing out certain sins. I want to put them all together now and say that all sin must have a responsibility behind it. We are the ones responsible. 
Our age speaks of error. We like to say, oh, it was a mistake, a delusion, or a superstition. But we say very little about S-I-N. We cannot give soft names to sin. It depreciates the value of the blood which was shed to save us from sin if we depreciate what sin is. It costs Jesus his life and God his beloved son. Thomas D. Bernard said, Our sense of sin is in proportion to our nearness of God. I don't know how it could be said any better. The closer a nation gets to God, the more awareness of sin it has. The farther a nation gets away from God, the less awareness of sin it has. Could that explain where we are today as we try to remove God from the stream of life? When we do, we let sin prevail, and that's what's causing us so much difficulty. How fundamental are the fundamentals? You better believe very fundamental. Now, what do I need to believe about sin? First of all, that our tendency is to be blind to our sin. Open your Bible to the second book of Samuel, the 11th chapter, for an illustration. It's the story of David and Bathsheba when David was on the roof, chapter 11, verse 2, and he saw a woman bathing. He desired her, and he had her come to his residence, and he had sexual intercourse with her, and she conceived a child. She sent word to the king that she had conceived, and he thought, what can I do? He sent for Uriah, her husband, who was one of his captains on the battlefield. Uriah came to the city. David talked to him and said, go home to your wife. See, he wanted to cover up his sin. He wanted to bring Uriah home so he could have sexual intercourse with his wife and everybody would think that the pregnancy occurred because Uriah came home from the battlefield for R&R. But he refused to go in to his wife. He stayed outside the door. David, in his frustration, sent him back to the battlefront with a message that he should be on the very front line and knowing he would be killed. And it happened exactly that way. Uriah was killed on the front line of battle. And so David then was free to take Bathsheba for his own wife. Everything's fine till you get to chapter 12. You see, God always has his prophets around who love to point their fingers in your face. And this prophet's name was Nathan. Nathan was the prophet. And Nathan stood before the king and told him a story of a rich man and a poor man, both living in the same city. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. The story goes that instead of taking from the rich man what was needed, they took the one ewe lamb from the poor man, all he had, and slew it. And when David heard the story, he said with anger, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. That's verse 5. Then verse 6, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now the finger. 
Nathan says to David, verse 7, Thou art the man. Mask off. Everybody knew. David was unmasked. You see, he's like we are, blind to our sin. He had to face his own sin, and he wouldn't until the prophet said, You have sinned. Did he pay for it? Oh, yes, the child died. His kingdom suffered too. But thank God he wrote Psalm 51. My sin is ever before me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You see, he came back by repentance, which I'll talk about in a few moments. But notice, he did not want to face his own sin, which is our biggest problem. We'd love to point to other people's sins, but we never like to admit our own. And even if we do, we call them by other names, mistakes, errors, family tradition. <laughs> we like to be told we are good. I was in the state legislature this week to listen to Dr. C. Everett Koop because the Today Show called and asked if I would be interviewed after his speech in our city about AIDS education. I thought I'd better go hear him speak. So I sat there in the gallery listening, and the Surgeon General of the United States made this statement, we are a good people. I take exception to that. We're a lousy people. We're a sinful people. We are not a good people. We're on the verge of destroying ourselves by our sin. No, I know what he meant. America was begun on religious principles, but we have gone so far astray. I don't think we can honestly say anymore, we are a good people, not with the pornographers taking billions of dollars out of our pockets and snatching young children from their neighborhoods, taking them to Hollywood and putting them in X-rated films and destroying them. We are not a good people, not when we smoke ourselves into cancerous deaths and destroy ourselves by AIDS. When we say we want to spend so much money for its eradication, it is useless and futile because you have to deal with sin. It's a sin of immorality, and we are facing, facing the consequences all over the world. That is not goodness. Former President Richard Nixon used to quote de Tocqueville regularly. He would say, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Sounds great, doesn't it? While sin runs rampant on our streets and in our neighborhoods, men leave their wives for no reason. Wives leave their husbands. Men and women doing things that are unseemly, young people disobeying, disobedient, smoking, drinking, puffing, sucking, snorting, running. Pleasure mad society. Is America good? I say we better face up to reality. We have sinned and God is unhappy with us. Now parents have a problem too. Because our tendency is to say, oh, son, you're a good boy. Daughter, you're a good girl. 
after doing something disobedient. I've heard parents say it. You're a good boy. They cannot be told over and over again they're good. You need to sit them down and say, now, son, you've sinned against God and against your parents, and you need to ask forgiveness. I raised two sons on that principle. Whenever they had been wrong, we had little sessions together with the open Bible, and I would say, Rick, this is what the Bible says. You have disobeyed God, and you've disobeyed me. Now let's get on our knees. You pray, ask God to forgive you, and you ask me to forgive you. Oh, that was terrible. That was harder than what was going to follow. The spanking really wasn't all that vital after that exercise. But I have two sons in the ministry today who love God with all their hearts. I haven't had to spend sleepless nights as they wandered through the world trying to find their way. You see, we need to look at people as they really are, not good. There's an innate desire there to sin, and we have to face up to our sin. R.C. Spruill summed it up. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is in us. We go to great lengths to avoid our own responsibility or even blame Satan for our imaginable evil. Like the lady who came home from shopping, wasn't supposed to buy anything, showed her husband a new dress. He said, honey, why didn't you put the devil behind you? She said, I did. And he said, ooh, it looks good from back here too. See, the devil even gets blamed many times for our own acts. We are not evolving to superior moral levels in this world, as some say. God drove man out of the garden because of his sin, and he's been on the run ever since. It's time to stop. It's time to face up to this doctrine that sent Jesus to a cross. What should I believe about sin? You need to know how to handle sin. There are two steps, simple steps. I want you to get them. Number one, let conviction work in you. When Jesus was leaving us to go back to the Father, he said that the Holy Spirit would come, and when he came, he would reprove the world of sin, or rebuke, or convict. The Holy Spirit is in the world as God's agent of conviction. That's why you feel so miserable when you sit listening to a sermon like this. Why your knuckles turn white as you grip the pew. Or you move from one side to the other, waiting for this to be over. Listen to me. Let conviction work. He works through the Word of God. He works through ministers. He works through friends or family members. He works through tracks. He works through programs like this to remind us that we're on our way somewhere and we better be ready. Let conviction work. Now I must tell you this because conviction does not always result in salvation. Open your Bible to Acts 24. Read about Paul before Felix. Felix was the governor. Paul shared with him about righteousness, 
and about self-control and about the judgment to come. And after he had shared his heart with him, Felix looked at the apostle and said, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The question you need to ask now is, did he ever have a convenient time? Let me answer it for you. No. After two years, Paul was still there teaching and sharing with Felix, but because he wanted to please the people, he turned Paul over. Never came to Christ as far as we know. You see, conviction does not always result in salvation. You have to let conviction work in you. How many will stand before God and have to say, it just wasn't a convenient time? And God will say to you, didn't you ever read in my book, now is the time, today is the day of salvation? Because it is here. Don't put it off. Respond. To conviction. It's God's method of bringing you out of sin into his wonderful salvation. Second thing you need to do is learn the joy of repentance. The joy of repentance? Absolutely. You know how I relate repentance? I related to when I was a boy and I would misbehave and I would get flogged. That was the old-fashioned method. You know, where you would get turned upside down and on the back of your lap, you would take a few. And it was right and good and biblical. And I needed it. Not as much as my brothers and sisters, but... That's a joke. I remember the joy that came to my heart over and over after the discipline. After I took it where it belonged. After I said, forgive me, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And hugged my mother's neck or my dad's neck and felt their love streaming through my life. Oh, what joy I felt when it was all over and I was forgiven and in fellowship with the family. There's nothing like that. In all the world. I remember standing over my mother one day. She was in bed. And she was afraid that I was going to be doing something I shouldn't be doing. And I stood there with tears dripping off my cheeks. I'll never forget it. Saying, Mom, I'm all right. I'm trying to follow Jesus. But she had that concern for me that pled with me to watch my way. And oh, what joy when I could say, Mom, I'm okay. God is working in my life. You don't have to fear. There's nothing like that. When the sun comes home from the far-off pig pen, what joy. Kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. He who was dead is alive. He who was lost is found. There's nothing to compare with that when repentance leads you home. Why are you afraid? My favorite poster right now is this. Smile, God loves you, and after all, you've put him through. That's really something. (laughs) And that's so true. I was reading about a mother 
in Darlington, Maryland. She had eight children, and she went over next door to visit a friend very quickly, came back to find her youngest five children in the middle of her new carpet in the living room with something kind of moving and wiggling in the middle of the carpet. And as she drew near, she was horrified to discover a family of skunks in the middle of her five youngest children. And in her horror, she shouted, Children, run! And they did, each one picking up one of the skunks as they ran. We're so much like that, grabbing the old life instead of letting go of the smelly thing. You see, that's why I wanted Perry to talk to you today. He let go of the smelly thing. You don't pick it up and run with it. He who is in Christ is new. Old things pass away. All things become new. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. How does that happen? Repentance. Be willing to turn from and go the other way. There are the two steps. Now anybody can understand that. Acknowledge conviction. Let it work in you and learn the joy of repentance. Now, there's one more point in my message, the result of our sin. What does the Bible say about that? Well, it means, first of all, separation from God. If you let it go to its ultimate end, it's separation from God. Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15. John saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The worst thing about hell will be the separation from God. No love. No hope. No opportunity to pray. No God there. We get involved so often in discussion about the fire of hell. Is it real? Will it burn? Well, there are examples in the Bible of fire that does not consume. Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, the bush was not consumed. So there is a fire like that that goes on and on and on. The three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace were in a furnace heated 70 times, seven times rather, it's normal heat. And yet they were not burned. And what about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment and he said, send Lazarus to warn my brothers not to come here. I'm in torment. I don't have any problem believing in an everlasting fire that doesn't consume. It goes on and on. But worse than that is that God will be absent. God will not be there. To be separated from God, from love, from life, for eternity, that's the end of sin. Is that what you want? Then there's one other thing that needs to be known about the result of sin. It resulted in the shedding of blood. Because of our sin, blood was shed. Way back in Genesis 3.21, God saw the nakedness of Adam and Eve, and the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. 
animals were slain. Blood was shed so that they could be covered in their nakedness and stand before God. And ever since that time, there was the Levitical order, the priestly order, the sacrificial order. And one day, John looked down a road and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that comes for the sin of the world, a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, a lamb led to the slaughters without speaking according to Isaiah 53. He died once for all. Hallelujah. He shed his blood that I might live eternally. For without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 says, there is no remission. And our text today says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. Your sin, my sin required blood. And Jesus was willing to shed his holy blood that we might not perish. So we leave those hymns in our hymn book. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In the hiding place, Corey Ten Boom tells about going to Ravensbrook Prison and that every Friday, every Friday, the prisoners would have to take all of their clothes off, parade in front of the Nazi guards for what was called medical inspection. It was humiliating. One Friday, as Corey did this, a phrase sprang into her mind. It was this phrase. Listen to it. He hung naked on the cross. This came into her mind. He hung naked on the cross. She'd never thought about that because every picture she saw, there was at least a loincloth around him. But the artist was trying to be kind. He didn't paint it according to the scripture because the scripture says that they took his clothes and they hung him up between heaven and earth, stripped. And as she stood in line, her sister Betsy was in front of her and she whispered to Betsy, Oh, Betsy, they took his clothes too. And Corey heard Betsy say, Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. You see, he was humiliated so that you don't have to be humiliated. He let every drop of blood flow out of his veins so that you wouldn't have to die forever without hope and without God. See, the truth about sin brings us into the powerful truth of the blood that was shed for the remission of all sin. No more animals need to be slain. You don't need to take a chicken by the neck and wring its neck and let the blood spill out and say, that's for my sin. No way! Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's the message of this book. What should I believe about sin? It will send us to eternal hell unless repented of and forgiven. But the way is open. Blood was shed for you. Andre Crouch wrote a song that says it so well. Open it. It's in your hymn book, page 262. Look at the words of this great hymn. 
As I sing just a little bit of it for you, let these words grip you. He hung there naked. He gave everything that sin might be forgiven and we might be whole as a nation, as a people, as a family, as an individual. Let this message grip your soul. We're sinners, but he's a savior. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary the blood that gives me strength from day to day 